words a person says say much about who a person is. The language and structure of language that we use gives indication about who we are, revealing both what's in our minds and in our hearts. Language has much to tell others about us. That's with this in mind. This morning I draw our attention to the next verse in our passage in Colossians, placing before us the Lord's call to glorify him with speech that is reflective of him. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, The Believer's Testimony of Speech. And please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 4, beginning verse 2 and going through the end of the chapter. The word of God reads, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may, may encourage your hearts. And with him, encourage, and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, he is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You may be seated. Language is a mighty force of a mighty God. By his word, God creates. By his word, God commands. And by his word, God condemns. The power of God is revealed in the power of the word. 
because language is an expression of who he is, meaning, and remember, that it expresses not just his power, but it also expresses his goodness, and it expresses his knowledge and his grace. Language even expresses his holiness. And so because language is an expression of who he is, the language we use should be carefully chosen, cultivated to reflect him as well. The power of language is also an expression of the Lord's judgment. If language exposes us to the character of God, then it must expose us to all of the character of God. This means that when it reveals his perfect holiness, it must also reveal his perfect judgment. Language itself is a form of punishment. We see that in Genesis chapter 11. We read of it this morning, reading of the people's desire to reach the Lord by their own initiative and by their own labor. They conspired then together to construct a tower that would reach him. The judgment for their self-righteous ways is found in verse 7. When the Lord says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8 goes on. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. In this way, the Lord can use his words for commendation, or he can use his words for condemnation. By recognizing the power of language, by seeing it as a means to expose us to himself, we start to then recognize just how tremendous of a gift language is. When God has given us the gift of his word, he has given us the gift of himself. Language is a means by which the Lord has chosen to bless his people because by it he reveals himself to us. He reveals himself through his spoken word. We saw that when it established and ordered creation. He reveals himself through his written word, the word of God, the scriptures, which direct our attention to him. And he reveals himself through the incarnate word, his son, Jesus Christ, who reveals the Lord's forgiveness and reconciliation with God the Father. And so because language is a gift from the Lord, language should be used to glorify the Lord. Even more, because language is an expression of who the Lord is, it is best used when we use it to reveal the Lord. This is a principle that's revealed in our text this morning in Colossians 4.6. Paul has begun to close out his epistle by this point. And in doing so, he's offering final exhortations to those who will hear it. Though he's written to the Colossians here, these exhortations build up the testimony of any believer in any era. What we learn here is just as relevant for us today as it is for the Colossians in their day. And so it's in these verses that Paul begins to construct a believer's testimony. In verse 2 of chapter 4, he establishes a believer's testimony of prayer. In verses 3 and 4, from his very own prayer request, Paul identifies a believer's testimony of proclamation. 
And just last week in verse 5, we were able to understand a believer's testimony toward outsiders. And now today, we arrive at verse 6. To recognize a believer's testimony of speech. A testimony of speech that is based upon our testimony for Christ. The verse reads, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I want you to note first the character of speech. The character of speech. Colossians 4, 6 establishes a higher standard for speech. It elevates it from something that was orchestrated by man to something that is now ordained by God. By saying, let your speech always be gracious. Paul takes our speech and he now sanctifies it. He makes it holy. And he does that by bringing it under the direction of Christ instead of the direction of the culture. And so as we look at this, I want you to look at three aspects of speech. Speech that reflects the character of the culture. Speech that reflects the character of Christ. And speech that should reflect the character of Christ's followers. (coughs) Consider first speech that reflects the character of the culture. Who does Paul write to, or or what era does he write in? Paul writes in an era when moralists determined rules, and those rules were meant to regulate everything, including speech. Their rules guided when it was appropriate to speak, what was acceptable to speak, and even when it was not suitable to speak. Found within their own set of standards is a rule to speak graciously, But for the culture of Paul's day, to speak graciously simply meant to be witty and to be clever. This was a culture influenced by Greek philosophers. And they placed a very high value on proper speech and proper etiquette in speech. Their standards were always to speak appropriately, to speak authoritatively, and to speak persuasively. But we know that Paul repudiates those rules, specifically when it concerns the message of Jesus Christ. Though the moralist would say to speak with eloquence and persuasion, Paul told the Corinthians that he did not come with either of those. And to Timothy, he he tells Timothy to preach the word, to preach the word always. Those same philosophers, though, would say that Religion of any kind could only be discussed at appropriate times. And so Paul, rather than conform his speech to the culture, transforms it. He's basically applying what he wrote to the the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. When he says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here we see that it's not just transformed in actions, but by Colossians 4, 6, it's transformed in speech and thought as well. And so Paul urges gracious speech. It's uncertain why he might have wrote this or felt compelled to include this particular piece of instruction here. Was there a specific testimony or a specific circumstance that had reached Paul's ear? Possibly, even probably, But we don't know what that is. What we do know is he says to speak with grace. 
But Paul is rejecting the culture's form of grace. And so he's not urging gracious speech as the culture of the day meant it, to speak with wit or to speak with cleverness. And he certainly couldn't have meant the same thing that we would say today when we talk about being gracious, accepting of all things. That's not what Paul would have said when speaking with grace. We must remember that the Bible is to be transcendent, meaning that it is to be relevant to all people, in all cultures, at all times. We must then understand that this verse, with a meaning that is applicable, it must have a a meaning that is applicable to all generations. We can't change the definition to accommodate people. And so... What does Paul mean here? What could Paul be implying to the Colossians that is still relevant today? How do we understand that? By simply understanding what Paul meant. And we do this by understanding that whenever Paul uses the word grace in his letters, it is always to refer to God's grace. And so he's writing here of speech that should reflect the character of Christ. They should reflect the grace of God. The idea is that the Colossian speech that comes out of their lives should reflect the gracious gospel that goes into their lives. Every statement is to be infused by the grace of God so that it reflects then the influence of that grace in our lives. Notice that this verse sets an even higher standard with that word always. The character speech is to be gracious, but not just sometimes all the time. There's a reason for this high standard. It's because the content of our speech is to reflect the character of God. He is always gracious. And so the words we speak should always be gracious as well. How we use our mouths, the words that come out of them, they're a testimony to what we think about God. James warns of a double standard when we use our tongues one way to bless God and another way to curse men. He says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. This is certainly not consistent with gracious speech. Instead, the words we speak are meant to be gracious always gracious because the Lord himself is always gracious. Our Lord, even when Israel tested him and pushed his patience, he still managed perfect control over himself and responded in grace. Not that there wasn't discipline there, but it was always perfect and gracious. Still today, when we do the same, when we push those boundaries and see how much we can get away with, the Lord still maintains that posture of grace. There is no end to God's grace filling our lives. And so there should be no end to God's grace filling our speech. As often as the Lord is filling our lives with his grace, the content of our speech responds in grace. We can never claim insufficient grace because the Lord's grace is always sufficient. And it's always plentiful, always abounding and being placed into our lives. Therefore, there is no situation in which ungracious speech is justified. 
The preeminent example of this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who even when he was most scorned, he maintained a speech that was consistent with his very own character, even to the point of sometimes not speaking at all. Described by Peter, it is said, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We may want to argue this point and say, but he's Jesus. He's God. Of course, he can maintain the standard of gracious speech. But that's the point. He is God. And so he not only maintains that standard, he is the standard. Therefore, the speech we take on should reflect our new nature as Christ followers. Having been sanctified by him, having been made holy by Jesus Christ, our speech is to be sanctified by him as well. We speak much of our actions becoming under the authority of Christ. But here in Colossians 4, 6, it is our words and our conversations that are now also brought under his authority. By this verse, the speech of a believer reflects our new nature we have in Christ. It should be evidenced by continuous grace. I've been watching the Australian Open, and one day I was watching one of the doubles matches. I had pulled up a book, so I was only half-heartedly watching, reading while it was going on, when it caught my attention because it got loud and some of the language I heard was pretty awful. And what happened is one of the doubles partners was upset at the point or upset at a call that the, the line judge had made. She actually was right. Replayed showed she was right. But regardless, her response lacked grace. She yelled, she belittled, she used foul language. But again, although she was right... There's no situation in which ungracious speech is justified. In her case, though, it shouldn't be unexpected. To the best of my knowledge, she has never professed a faith in Christ. I don't think she is a believer. And so we should expect a believer, unbeliever, to respond in that way. How can we expect one who hasn't received the grace of God to have speech that reflects that grace of God? The standard for believers is sanctified speech, but for what purpose? To be an example to those like her who do not understand it. And in that way, we then fulfill verse 5, which says, Be wise in how you act towards outsiders. If we don't follow the truth of verse 6, we risk disobeying the truth of verse 5. We cannot be a people of sound doctrine only. We must be sound in theology and sound in speech. In fact, the character of our speech should reflect the character of our theology because the nature of our speech should reveal the nature of God, which comes from our study of God, our theology. How did this come something important? The character of a believer's speech is to be gracious, but our speech cannot be full of grace if we are not full of grace. This is a character of speech. 
I want you to note, second, the content of speech. The content of speech. The initial part of the verse, our text, defines the character of our speech. It speaks to how we should speak to one another. But the second aspect here defines what we should speak to others. It tells us the content of our speech. Speech that has been sanctified by Christ must be sanctified in both ways. Godliness defines both what we say and how we say it. And so our text here just says, seasoned with salt. That admonition comes from a believer's position. Who we are in Christ determines who we are for Christ. And so if we are in Christ, our, re- our speech will reflect that position in Christ. Jesus speaks to this himself in Matthew chapter 5. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And having sat down himself, and then the crowds also begin saddling down, and Jesus begins to teach them. And early on in that two chapters, two and a half, three chapters of teaching, chapter 5, verse 13, he says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Notice the first part. You are the salt of the earth. That is to say that anyone who follows Christ is described as the salt of the earth. And salt always has two purposes. First, it acts as a preservative. It keeps something like meat from spoiling, from being corrupted by something that's going to cause it to spoil. At times, this description is given in Scripture, that we act like salt to keep things from spoiling. But salt also acts as a seasoning. It's meant to add flavor to a dish, to make it not just palatable, but enjoyable. Because our text here says to season our speech with salt... It must be this definition it means, that we're adding flavor when we add salt to the speech. Speech, then, is to be relevant to the hearer. And and by being relevant to the hearer, that reality doesn't mean we compromise. I'm not saying that we puree something so that it can be more easily swallowed. We don't soften speech. Food that requires salt is something that is substantive, though, and and significant. It fills the stomach and leaves a person full and satisfied. And so it should be with a believer's speech, full of both the content and character of Christ. Speech that is sanctified leaves hearers filled and satisfied because it will leave them filled with the grace of God. In other words, it is seasoned with Christ. Speech of this nature is like a three-course meal, consisting of an appetizer and a main dish and a dessert. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, just, just shortly prior to Colossians. And I want us to see three aspects of speech that is salty. <coughs> I want to begin in Ephesians chapter 5. And then we'll work our way backwards. So Ephesians chapter 5, looking first at verses 3 and 4. The text that we read is, is this. 
But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Verse 4. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Speech that is flavorful praises Christ. It is full of thanksgiving for him. We often begin our conversations with people with some sort of pre-talk. The meaningless and the mundane. It's like the appetizer, and I'm going to beat this to death, this imagery of a meal, but bear with me. It's like the appetizer or the salad that comes before the main course. Do you know what a salad needs? Flavor, salt. Give me a second to teach you something very important, and I want you to understand this. Salad is not a meal. (laughs) Salad is not a meal. Despite what restaurants may charge you for it. Those leafy greens, they have no flavor. Do you know how things like cabbage and spinach are best eaten? When you throw in a pan with a stick of salted butter and saute it. One comedian says, at best, a salad is a promissory note. It's noting that real food is coming. It's preparing us for something that's wonderful. That's how we often begin our conversations. Something meaningless but with anticipation and with hope that something better is coming. But this verse condemns not just corrupt speech, but but meaningless speech. And what we see is speech that has been salted avoids that idle and that meaningless talk. And instead, it's full of praise for Christ. Like a salad is preparing us for something more. Speech that is full of thanksgiving prepares our hearts to both praise Christ and be pleased by Christ. When giving instructions about how to pray in Matthew 7, still the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with the same principle, with thanksgiving and an exaltation of who God is. Our conversations with God begin by thanking God, by exalting him. And so it makes sense that Even our conversations with one another should begin the same way. And so flavorful speech praises Christ. Flavorful speech also props up with Christ. Speech seasons with Christ, and it props up with Christ. Now look at chapter 4, verse 29 of Ephesians. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Like the main course, this is where we spend the bulk of our conversation. Conversation that is gracious seeks to build others up in the grace of God. The talk engaged in here is not destructive, but constructive. Sometimes, though, salt actually stings. If you have a cut in your mouth and you salt your food, that salt will hurt. But even still, it props up. 
because it cleans and heals that wound so that you once again may be able to taste the full flavor of the meal rather than be distracted by that tiny cut. Using salt in the main dish should accent all the other flavors and highlight its important characteristics. This is how it should be with our, our speech. That it highlights the important characteristics of Christ. Finally, flavorful speech pursues Christ. Same chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, but now look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. It's like the dessert of the meal. We praised Christ at the appetizer. We've discussed our need for Christ at the main dish, and now we speak the truth of Christ, but we speak it in love. Sometimes salt may sting, but other times you need that salt to magnify the sweetness. We need that salt to taste the sweetness. And an excellent dessert is going to leave us wanting more. With the meal concluded, it would be so flavorful and it'd be satisfied, but yet we still want more. Truth spoken in love leaves us wanting more. This verse doesn't just determine the character of our speech, but it also determines the content of our speech. And the content of our speech is very simply Christ. You need to notice something important. Every example I just gave you speaks of how we talk to fellow believers, how we would expect to talk to one another. But what's the context of this verse? Paul has just asked for prayer in verses 3 and 4, prayer to speak to unbelievers, to have opportunities. And then he urges the Colossians to do the same. It seems then that though our speech certainly towards one another should be gracious, the application Paul makes here is that it should be gracious towards outsiders, that is, unbelievers. How do we do that? In the same way I just shared with you, those same examples, praising Christ, propping up with Christ, and pursuing Christ. We avoid meaningless speech by talking about the most meaningful thing that we can talk about, the need for a Savior. The content of a believer's speech praises Christ. It props up with Christ and it pursues Christ. This is the content of speech. I want you to note finally the consequence of speech. The consequence of speech. The last part of the verse reads, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This part of the verse points to the outcome of speech. The words we use are chosen for a purpose. No person intends to string together words or sentences in a meaningless manner, but rather we all use language as a means to accomplish something. It has a purpose. It may be to convey a message or to teach a principle. Sometimes it's to persuade or to inspire others to belief or action. Here, the text identifies that purpose for us. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
language, as I stated earlier, is a gift of the Lord, a gift given by him for our good and for his glory. Without it, communication is improbable, and without it, our connection is impossible. If we did not have language, we would not have relationships with God or with others. There was a time in history when all speech was perfect. Every word was perfectly spoken. Every, word, every concept was perfectly conveyed. And every sentence was perfectly understood. It was a time that didn't need warnings like what we read in Ephesians 5. Or what Paul mentions in Colossians 3. Because all speech was already perfectly holy. And then somewhere around Genesis 3, we had the fall. And sin entered the world. And it influenced everything. And when humanity fell, speech and language fell also. At this point, our ability to communicate with one another was tainted, influenced by sin. It's made interacting with others more difficult so that confusion has now become more common and conflict more abundant. By sin's influence, the words we use, now they've become weapons to wound rather than a means to glorify God. A precisely chosen word will cause pain and a well-placed adjective combined with the right tone will cause grief. Proverbs 18.21 stipulates that from our lips comes life and death, or life or death. What Colossians 4.6 does is it, it takes our speech and captures it for life instead of death. It restores our fallen speech. And after its fall, this verse elevates speech as something that once again should be used for the glory of God and the good of people. 1 Corinthians 10.31 reads, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That whatever you do in that includes our speech. Both what we say and how we say it falls under this provision. This becomes a slightly convicting point because it compels then self-examination tells us to look at ourselves and ask probing questions like, do the words I use convey the grace and glory of God? Does the language I use attract or detract from Christ? And not just my words, but also my tone. Does it convey anger or animosity? With such a stringent standard, how do we maintain commitment to this verse? The indication of Colossians 4, 6 is that by speech that is gracious and seasoned with Christ, we will then know how to respond to one another. We learn that our speech is characterized by grace of Christ. And because of that, the content of our speech is also Christ. But how does this help with being able to answer others? How does that help with us being a witness? Because the speech that focuses on Christ and seeks to manifest the grace of Christ is sensitive to people's need for Christ, whether believer or unbeliever, in reality. In conversation, we will know that our greatest need is the grace of Christ. And the greatest need of the person we're speaking to 
is the same thing, the grace of Christ. Speech that is ungracious usually is a result of wanting to accomplish something, wanting to get what we want or get something out of it. But speech that is gracious is focused on the other individual and their needs, specifically, again, their need for Christ. The result of a conversation, then, is that Christ is both the answer and application of what is said. Practically speaking, what does this look like? Luke chapter 21, Jesus discusses end times. He speaks of coming persecution. It said, he says, in those days, followers of Christ will be brought into the public before high-ranking officials. And he says this will become a time for them, for any believer, to bear witness. And then he says this, Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and a wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. What happens here? Ultimately, what we see is our speech becomes an exercise of faith. It's an exercise of trust in which we have to anticipate that the words we speak will come from Christ. But how does Christ do that? Through his word and his spirit. Christ uses the Holy Spirit to prompt people with his word. Every time someone gave a testimony in the book of Acts, we see that, whether it be Peter or Stephen or Paul, we always read the same thing. They were prompted by the Spirit, compelled by him, and they recited the stories and the teachings of Scripture. So look at Colossians 4, 6 again. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. To fulfill that verse, we only need the word and the spirit. So when we try to speak under our own authority and our own power, when it often becomes ungracious. But when we speak the scriptures guided by him, we can trust that our speech will always be characterized by grace. And when we speak scriptures, we know that the content of our speech will always be Christ. And when we speak scriptures, we know that we will always have an answer because the answer to everything is found there. This assumes, though, that, of course, we know the scriptures, that we're immersing ourselves in the word of God so that the Holy Spirit may prompt us. The consequence of our speech is to accomplish God's purpose, to give an answer to each person. At the Portland Symphony last night, between each musical movement, the conductor would pause to introduce the next piece. Though it was unscripted, it was understood that each time this happened, it was for a purpose. Specifically, it was to make known the music that we were about to hear, the next music. And so the conductor would develop a story, a true story, giving us the background and the information, both about the composer and the song itself, the inspiration, even the use of music and where we might hear it. Each word he spoke was delivered for a specific purpose. His words were an attempt to carry the listener along to understand that purpose. This conductor seemed to understand something else. Words are powerful. 
this particular one is known worldwide for his ability to interact with the audiences. And so he was in a position of authority. Before him was a captive audience. And with each introduction, he would assert some sort of piece of ideology. And that would carry throughout all the way to the end until at the very end, he had finally used his words, both powerfully and for a purpose, to not only introduce the music, but to convey a certain mindset. And so his words, we see, have purpose and power. And that's exactly how words work. There was a saying as a child, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can't hurt me. We forget, though, that the pen is mightier than the sword. Sometimes words carry more significance than we give credit. Words have purpose and they have power. By words, empires have been constructed, and by the very next words, they've been destructed. By words, we can build people up or tear them down. And by word, we can magnify God or we can mock God. If we were to speak, let us speak of Christ. If we were to speak, let us speak with the character of Christ. And if we were to speak, let us speak always directing people to Christ. Both the purpose and the power of words is to proclaim him. And so language is an expression of who the Lord is. Therefore, it is best used when we use it to reveal him. And so let the nature of our speech reflect the nature of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this gift of language because by it we now have the written word, which began as your spoken word, Lord. Not just our words, but words specifically ordained by you that describe you, that reveal you, Lord. And, and by words and by language, we can know you. We can have a relationship with you, Lord. And ultimately, the ultimate word, your son, Jesus Christ, through his death, the burial, and the resurrection, that payment for sin, we can know you even more. And so we know that words are powerful, they're purposeful, Lord. Father, as you've given us this gift to stewards, Father, I pray we would steward it for you. May we reveal you with the words that we use, and not just with the words we use, but also the manner in which we speak, Lord. May it convey your grace so that people would want to know your grace more deeply, Lord. Father, I thank you that we can know that grace, that you've given us the opportunity. May the nature of our speech reflect the nature of your Son. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.